thank you everybody for, for coming uh, to this, hopefully what's going to be a very interesting talk about fakes and misattributions in um, art. Does this work? I do. Can you hear me anyway? Or shall, shall I, is it working? No. It is working. It is working. Um, my name is uh, Noor Kadim. I'm a partner at Gardner Leader um, firm. Uh, we are based um, primarily in Newbury and Maidenhead with a new London office. So I'm in the London office and I work amongst other things. I mean, I do, I'm an arbitration lawyer um, and also um, I'm in the art field as well. So we um, have put together this talk for you. I won't take up too much time talking about ourselves, but hopefully get onto the speech. And I'm, I'm delighted here to be joined by uh, Richard Edwards, QC, um, a barrister at Three Burial and Buildings. And thank you to Three Burial and Buildings for co-hosting this um, talk. Um, and Richard will be joining me to talk about um, this. Well, Richard will talk specifically about English law and the cases in which he has been involved and of which he has knowledge in, in the field of for fakes, forgeries, and misattributions. Um, I've said a bit about myself, I'll let uh, Richard uh, introduce himself and then I'll start with um, a brief overview before handing over to Richard. Yes, well thank you Noor, I'm, as, as Noor said, I'm, um, my name's Richard Edwards, I'm a barrister and Queen's Council at uh, three uh, Verulam buildings. Um, before coming to the bar I worked, not for a very long time, uh, as an art, um, for, for an art uh, dealer uh, in uh, Bond Street. It didn't take me very long to realise that I didn't have quite the degree of entrepreneurial flair that was required to be a high flyer in that area, um, but it certainly wasn't for want of interest in the subject that I decided to change course and become a, a barrister. So it's been a, a pleasure for me to get involved in some cases uh, that raising issues of this uh, kind, and that's what I'll be talking about in a little while after. Okay, so... Um. <coughs> So, although authenticity and attribution are interrelated, they are slightly different. This talk will talk in the later part, Richard's talk, will focus on the sale of misattributed artworks um, at auction specifically and the auctioneer's liability under English law for misattribution and how the English courts have dealt with such claims. But first, I'll start by framing the issue and explaining the significance of authentication and attribution in the art world. I'll then briefly discuss the process of authentication and the importance of experts in that process. In the course of this, before, before handing over to Richard, I'll, I'll illustrate my talk with some examples and some cases, but without going into too much detail about the cases. And I'll also aim to make this a bit interactive where I can and where you can participate. So let's frame the issue and talk about the purpose of attribution. It's been said that attribution plays such an important role that it actually outweighs the physical artwork itself. Um, this is because essentially attribution determines whether or not an artwork is authentic. In turn, authenticity is argued to be the most important attribute of artworks. Authenticity is the correct identification of not just the creatorship but also the date and the provenance of an artwork. Expertise is the cornerstone of this process, uh, which is why so many experts are highly regarded in, in the market. For this reason, the Court of Arbitration for Art, based in The Hague, which I 
is something I would encourage people to look at as a forum for the resolution of disputes because they have thought carefully about the subject and they found that the choice of a reputable expert to assist the tribunal should not by default go to the parties who may not be choosing the right, the right expert and may lead to disastrous consequences. So three different methods, which I'll discuss shortly, are used alone or in combination to buy auction houses, gallerists, and prospective buyers to de determine authenticity. However, to say that a work is misattributed is not necessarily to say that it is inauthentic. Who knows what this is? Donkey. Donkey. In this case, it's quite easy. This is not a horse. It's not pretending to be a horse. We've all established it's a donkey. It's pretty, it's pretty easy to say in this case. An artwork is authentic, so it's authentically a donkey. It's not a, it's not a horse, if it's pretending to be. An artwork is authentic if its attribution matches its identity and its label, the label that it's given. But let's go to something a bit more difficult, let's say. Which of these would you say, one of them is a Vermeer, which of them would you say is authentic? The one on the right or the one on the left? The left? Who says the right? So, so the correct answer is neither the, the right nor the left, it's both of them. <laughs> The one on the right is a work by Johannes Vermeer, 1632, uh, he was born. Girl reading a letter at an open window. The one on the left, Alberti's window, cannot unreservedly be said to be a fake Vermeer, even though it is in the style strongly reminiscent of a Vermeer. It is, work, it is a work by a, by a faker, Han van Meegen, who painted it more than two centuries later. That's not to say it's any less authentic, it's just, as long as it's not mislabeled a Vermeer. Um, just as a donkey in horse's clothing will always be a donkey and will never be a horse. I'm not trying to, to say that Han van Meegen is donkey, but anyway, the analogy. Not everyone agrees necessarily with the correlation between authenticity and attribution. A, a legal scholar, Francois Duret Robert, says that if a forger has created a work intending it to be passed off as another, it cannot be um, authentic to any style, not even his own. That is his view. So this brings us on to the subject of authentication and the methods used for, for this, of which reliance on scholarship, connoisseurship is a major, is, is one, but is, is one of three. So those three methods are documentation, which is the provision of certificates, records, testifying to the artist's authorship of the work or the date in which it was produced. Secondly, Scientific verification, radiocarbon dating, high resolution photography, uh, luminescent analysis, X-ray technologies. And um, the process is usually accurate and objectively verifiable, but is it always so? And then, and then the third is connoisseurship or stylistic inquiry. This is one of, if not the prime method of authentication when the artist also is not alive. But what are the problems that um, are associated with these, th these three methods? Documentation, taking that as a, as a first example, is, is sometimes unavailable. It might either be missing or worse, forged. In the, in the old master's time, 
the old masters rarely signed their works and provided documentation. So, and also they also often, such as Titian, worked in studios with their students and directed them to produce, you know, uh, works in their style and gave them, a, you know, a uh, tasks according to a general purpose. And these students would create works in the style very reminiscent of, of the master. So it's very difficult then. It becomes difficult without a signature, without documentation to prove whether the work is, of, is by Titian or by one of his students. In the contemporary art world, signed artists' certificates of authenticity assume a vital role compared to signed artwork. Um, without them, sometimes it's impossible to sell an artwork. Um, so this is a wall painting by uh, Saul Lewitt. An example in this case is the Saul Lewitt wall drawings. So in this case, the state doesn't want to risk that a certificate of authenticity is forged. They will only issue one. If you lose it, you lose it, and that's your problem. Um, so this led Roderick Steinkamp, I don't know if anybody knows of this case, against the Rona Hoffman Gallery to sue the gallery for losing the certificate of authenticity in relation to a Saul Lewitt wall drawing. Um, so he sued the Hoffman Gallery for breach of bailment, breach of contract, um, and the English tort of conversion, which Richard may talk about. So it can be quite expensive error. The archive system for artists, dead or living, assumes also great importance. The inclusion of a work in a catalogue raisonné of an artist, dead or alive, also proves the authenticity of the work. If the estate deems a work to be fit for a catalogue, this in a way is proof of its, of its authenticity. Um, so that the person who makes that decision has a lot of power. And it also prompts an increase in its value. So that's documentation. Going on to scientific verification. Scientific verification itself also is not fail-safe. It's useful for uncovering a fake, but it's not as good at, at positive to positively confirming whether a work is of a certain art is by a certain artist. This is um, a Franz Hals work, Portrait of a Man. Does anybody know about um, this case in 2011? Yes. So in 2011, as you'll know, so Sotheby's brokered the sale of this painting for $10.8 million. But science proved it to be a fake because it contained traces of 20th, 20th century pigments which couldn't have been available at the time. Does that mean that we can rely on science to prove authenticity? No, because the same processes can themselves be flawed. And reliance on science alone can prove to be a costly mistake, as the Getty Museum found in 91. So the Getty Museum was presented with a Greek Kouros statue, and it, they were, this would have been one of their greatest finds, um, and would have been um, wonderful to, 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 to have discovered. And so they basically disregarded the views of experts at the time who thought, there's something not quite right with this statue. 14 months of scientific analysis led them to believe, led them to conclude that it was a, an authentic uh, kouros. And it's only when later another fake appeared um, that was very similar, they started to question whether those scientific processes actually were, were correct. And actually, 
they found after 14 months, after, after displaying it in 1986, that it was actually fake and the, the science was, was incorrect, that it could have been reproduced in a laboratory if the, if the faker had gone, gone to those lengths. And this, this corroborated the expert's view, which was there's something not quite right about this, uh, about this, this statue. And in that case, science failed the experts, the, sorry, the, the museum. So this leads to connoisseurship. <laughs> it's inherently subjective. And this is where expertise comes in. As we can see, experts do not need to have qualifications. So long as they profess themselves to be experts and the market believes them, they are experts. They, artworks are traded with a label which only authenticators, usually scholars or experts, can provide. So authenticating artworks is not like other fields in which um, the field of expertise can be objectively verified, regulated, um, primarily because anyone can, you know, uh, Delboy and Rodney can claim to be an expert, if anybody is familiar with only fools and horses. Um, so generally over time, professionals come to rely on certain individuals being experts, and even in some special, specialist areas come to rely on an overriding expert among them. The second way in which art exper expertise differs to other types of, of expertise is that there's no objective, transparent method to test their conclusions. So when it comes to a court to decide amongst them, the results may also be quite arbitrary. Um, especially when the judge does not have the expertise to determine this matter, and this is where judgments of the eye come in. Um, strikingly, I won't go into detail on this, but I don't know if anybody's familiar with the Peter Doidge case, where Peter Doidge, the artist, um, was, was a, you know, an artwork was attributed to him, and he was disclaiming, saying this was not painted by me. It didn't even matter to the, to the court that the... On, first glance that it wasn't even signed Peter Doig, but Peter Doidge. Um, and he, he, he eventually was, I mean, he obviously the case was decided in his favor, but not after he had to be put through the process of confirming that this was not actually an artwork painted by him, but by somebody else while he was in prison. Peter Doig was never in prison. And, um, and uh, his mother had to be hauled out, I think, during the process to show evidence of his school handwriting. Um, in, in you know, kind of proving that her, his son, her son's handwriting wasn't that which was on the, on the paper. The judge didn't have an, an understanding. So it's very, very important, not just for you to have an expert, to, to rely on experts in the art world, but for the court themselves to be aided by expertise, especially to have a judge who's cognizant of these, of these things. Sometimes, so there's no, there's no way categorically to say which expert opinion is correct. It will ultimately depend on who has more sway in the market. So there's no comparators. So the Lost Isle drawings by Vincent van Gogh is an, is, is an example. Two renowned, so these, these drawings were found, and two renowned scholars said that they were authentic and published them in 2016. These were known scholars who were um, experienced in the work of van Gogh. But the Van Gogh Museum itself denied that they were authentic, relying amongst other things on documentation and scientific science. So, so who do you believe? Who does the art market believe? Sometimes, incredibly, even the same expert can at different points in time come to a different conclusion about the same artworks. So it shows that it's not a mathematical process. We all know that one plus one equals two, but what about these turners? Are they authentic? 
this is a mathematical formula. This is, these are Turners that were just, I don't know, again, may, people may be familiar with this case. But these T-Turner works were initially thought by an expert to be false, to be fakes, and so they were not displayed. Decades later, um, aided again by scientific analysis, they were revalidated by the very same expert who now was convinced that they, now is convinced that they are genuine. But can you imagine what would have happened if these turners had been deemed fake and destroyed? Because in some countries, you, you are to destroy fake works in circulation. You would, you could, one could easily have destroyed genuine turners. Again, this is an example of a Titian that was thought to be fake and later found to be genuine. This, this goes on to who controls the art market. And what I'd like to talk about of interest is conflicts of interest and non-transparency. Given all of this subjectivity and the power that some uh, experts wield in the market, you have to wonder about conflicts of interest, which for me merits an entire discussion in itself. So connoisseurship decisions are subjective and their process is not transparent. It's a lethal combination. Art expert opinions cannot objectively be attacked in the same way that documentation and science can be challenged. It becomes even more problematic when the art market decides to trust the scholarship of only one expert in a specific niche field. So this means that in practice, even if, say, you have a case and the court decides that, say, a Rembrandt is real, pursuant to the expert that they appoint, in practice, if the art market decides to follow the view of another, of the overriding expert who disagrees with the court, it may be valueless. Your court decision may be valueless. I have, a, I have a judgment that says this is a real Rembrandt, but the foremost expert that's trusted by the art market doesn't agree. The power dynamic and the opportunity for wrongful profit to be made thanks to manipulation is evident as well. So the authenticators, as we know, can be artists of states, committees, or independent experts. They play a key role in protecting the artist's legacy and, and the market and in eliminating fakes and misattributions. But consider this, it may not be in the interests of an art expert authentication board to increase the, num the, uh, the number of certain artworks in circulation because it would affect those artworks that, that are currently in their possession or, or that exist. Consider also that some authenticators gained influence thanks to the fact they established a reputation themselves as dealers and they may continue to be working in that field. Can you see that if they are still dealing in the work of a, of the, of a deceased artist and how it, it may be in their interests not to authenticate works? So when experts are perceived to come to the wrong decision, they can be sued. This includes individuals as well as, as, as the boards. So in the Metzing, Metzinger litigation in France, the leading expert on the Cubist artist gene, Jean Metzinger, and the holder of his moral rights, Bozina Nikiel, was sued and actually found guilty by the French Court of Appeal um, for refusing to include what the court-appointed expert deemed was a genuine uh, Metzinger in the catalogue raisonné. She had power over that. She was asked, and this was relating to an article in the French Civil Code, 1382, which basically says that, and the position may be different, in, it is different in England, but in France, if you do profess an opinion and you, you hold yourself out that, um, uh, to be an expert, then you are liable for the consequences of, of that decision if the court thinks that you're wrong. 
um, the, the, her liabil liability finding was later, however, overturned by the Court of Cassation because they followed Article 10 of the European Convention of Human Rights, which protects freedom of expression. So it is held that you have the right not to, to believe that, you know, to, to, to profess that this is not an authentic work, and that is your right. That is un under the, that's protected under the European Convention for Human Rights. So in the end, she was saved. But here's a question to the audience. What remedy could and did the Court of Appeal devise as an alternative to punitive damages against Nikhil? So prior to her being exonerated, does anyone, can anyone think of what she might have been asked to do by the court? Failing which she would have to pay damages? No. Yeah. So she, she was asked to include it in the catalogue raisonné. Um, an option could have been to include it in the catalogue raisonné, referring to the, the case in, in which there are doubts to include it, but then have a note. Um, but she, you know, she, she didn't have to go that far, but that, that's, what, that's what she was asked to do. So basically, sometimes experts can be forced to, uh, to reconsider their decisions. Um, in terms of foundations, boards, the Andy Warhol, people may also be uh, knowledgeable about this case, but there were other cases against the, foundation, the Andy Warhol Foundation, which was the sole authority in authenticating Warhols which prompted it to close its doors. The Andy Warhol Foundation stopped authenticating works after it was sued one too many times for its liking. So this time it's the dispute relating to the Red Self portrait. The collector, Joe Simon Willan, in 2009 was, um, was irate that it was not, um, not authenticated by the board. Um, now the board dissolved in 2011. Ultimately that case was dropped but not after um, seven million had been spent by uh, the collector in, in the lawsuit and a lot of money had been spent by the Warhol Foundation. Unlike in England, in the US, each party paid its own costs, so it was very expensive. So you don't have to go through the, uh, uh, an entire court case to have spent money and to have been injured financially. As a result of that and some other decisions, and the Warhol Foundation closed and stopped authenticating, which is disastrous for the art world because then who do you have? Then you have the potential of many fakes being in circulation and nobody stepping up to say these are not, you know, no, nobody wants to stick their head above the parapet if they're at risk of being sued. Um, conspiracy theorists said that economic reasons can underpin the decisions not to authenticate, so that was the claim that he made. A similar case was that of Elizabeth Belinsky against the Keith Haring Foundation. This was an action filed in New York in 2014, about three years after the Haring Foundation stopped authenticating. The plaintiffs defied um, the foundation for refusing to authenticate 111 works purportedly by Haring, claiming that by rejecting authentic Haring works, the foundation has inflated the value of works owned by the foundation and its representatives, which has benefited them. What happened, as I said, unsurprisingly, um, many, many boards have shut shop. Finally, you'll be glad to hear I'm almost coming to the end of the talk, um, and I'll talk about what's called sleepers, or artworks that have been undervalued and mislabeled by an expert, and then undersold at auction. 
So the artwork, uh, the sleeper, is introduced to the market in the auction catalog or the website, wrongly labeled. So there are three types of misattributions which can mean that a work can be characterized in hindsight <coughs> as a sleeper. The artwork first is attributed to a lower value artist. The artwork is incorrectly dated. And the artwork provenance or ownership, or the artwork provenance and ownership history is incorrectly attributed. So all of these signs of authenticity, which I mentioned at the beginning, what is authenticity? One of these aspects is incorrect. In one important case, um, a Nicolas Poussin was unwittingly sold by a gallery after having, uh, by um, a deceased British businessman's heirs at auction after having been discovered in his chicken shed. It had lay in the chicken shed for many, many years. Um, and it was later learned to the great chagrin that of, the, of the heirs that it was actually worth many, many millions more than, well, 4.5 million. Um, and it was attributed to, to Poussin. This was not how Sotheby's had um, labeled or sold it. They had misattributed the work to an inferior Pietro Testa. The case, so, the, so my question I guess to you is, can sleepers ever be authentic? Yes or no? So the answer is no, because the sleeper's true identity is concealed, and for as long as that is the case, um, it cannot be an authentic anything. Well, once um, it's held with the, the, the simple fact that it's recognized as being a sleeper means that it's being reattributed to it, and then its identity has been revealed. But for as long as it's mislabeled, it's not authentic, either as, yeah, yeah. as the work of the faker or the, yeah. Um, so for this reason, and so the power of the label becomes very important. How things are described are very important. The expertise on which you rely is very important. <coughs> so for this reason, because of the great risk involved at times with that misattribution, the art market does rely, we go back to expertise, does rely on the third of those uh, methods of proving an artwork, which is connoisseurship. Going on to auction houses and attributions. The auction houses might be said to be more shrewd in averting risks relating to misattribution. Under English law also, the rule of caveat emptor applies. In the case that Richard will discuss regarding Mr. Thwaites' claim against Sotheby's, it was found that the auction house had not misattributed Caravaggio's um, card sharps, but had reasonably described it as a copy and were found by the courts not to have acted neg negligently. Man, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, who bought the painting from Sotheby's, repeatedly insisted it was genuine. Um, I mean, currently, I think it's still on public display, but there's a plaque describing the case and that there are doubts as to its authenticity. On the other hand, in a contrasting case involving one of Russia's most prominent businessmen, Victor Vexelberg, the buyer, Vexelberg, su successfully sued Christie's for a refund of 1.7 million pounds he had paid for what was incorrectly advertised to him as a work by Boris Kostodian. In this case, there was a guarantee um, at play, which, which Richard will discuss. Christie's had given a contractual guarantee that the work was not a forgery. Finally, in, the, in terms of the mechanics of actually bringing a claim, the judge in the Thwaites case accepted that it is difficult for a claimant 
to find an auction house expert with relevant experience who is not involved with either Sotheby's or Christie's, the two big auction houses. So in such a specialist area, this, can, this area can become problematic in the context of a court case. For claimants who wish to fight the auction houses and try to find an expert who is truly independent. So Richard will be talking about these cases in more detail. Thank you very much for listening. Before handing over to Richard, I do want to refer you to two useful texts, one of which I, I do have and I did and find very useful. Um, a, um, a friend and co-speaker of mine, uh, Daniel McLean, edited a very good book on artists, authorship, and legacy uh, with articles by foremost critics. In them, there is a good article by Georgina Adam, who I've worked with as well, and so uh, whose chapter on artists, legacies, authentication, and the art market is very well written. And the other book is a book um, specifically on misattributed artworks at auction by Anne-Laure Bandel, who is in Geneva. So I, those two texts, if anybody wants to read a bit more, I, I would refer you to them. So I hope that was of uh, use, of interest, and I hand over to Richard. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Noor. Um, I'm going to be talking about very similar topic, but with slightly more emphasis on the English cases and this exciting looking list that, uh, that on your chair um, uh, can, uh, lists uh, all of them that I'm going to be talking about, plus another few that I think I can get through them all. Um, <clears throat> but uh, when I'm, 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 there's quite a lot to talk about in this area, as you can imagine. I'm going to try and get through as much as possible, but there are a few recurring themes that I'd like to say, perhaps that you might. Uh, find yourself thinking about as I speak, and, and, and one of them is uh, the distinction between matters of fact and matters of opinion, and Nora's already touched on this, um, but I'll be inviting you to think about how um, confident we ought to be about that distinction, because it comes up again and again. Um, are we really clear about uh, what the distinction actually is and where the line is or should be drawn between facts and opinions? Um, secondly, the relationship and sometimes the tension uh, between technical or scientific approaches to authentication and, on the other hand, connoisseurship or the judgment of the eye. Different disciplines which can work extremely well together, um, but nonetheless sometimes seem to be competing each other, uh, with each other for attention. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> anyway, we, I think we're all right, actually. Um, thanks, James. Oh. Yeah, we're all right. We're there. Competing for attention and competing for authority. And we see that again again, again in, the, in the cases where one or other party is relying more on the scientific analysis and the other party is relying more on connoisseurship. So um, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in a couple of these cases, as has Andrew Onse, who's in the audience, and Harrod Starr, who's also in the audience, and, 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 and no doubt uh, many others. Um, but I'm going to start with a case which, sadly, I wasn't able to... Um, to do, if only because it was, uh, the trial took place in 1787. <laughs> and that was a case called uh, Des Enfants and <coughs> Van de Gaucht, which was a, an action to recover the price of 700 pounds paid for a painting attributed uh, to Poussin. It was tried by a jury. So what we know about the case is derived uh, from contemporary newspaper reports and not from the law reports themselves. So we didn't have a decision by a judge on this case. Um, but I, and I think I ought to credit uh, this uh, excellent essay um, as the source of much of what I'm going to say about this particular case. Um, the plaintiff, uh, Noel Joseph Zonfans, 
uh, was an art dealer, now chiefly remembered, along with his business partner, Sir Francis uh, Bourgeois, there they are, uh, for having brought together the paintings that form the core of the collection at the Dulwich uh, Picture Gallery. That's um, Des Enfants on the, on the right. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the uh, defendant, Benjamin van der Gust, was also a dealer who'd acquired a painting of the Virgin Mary, which he offered for sale as a poussin. Des Enfants, rather perhaps uh, hard, uh, foolhardily, uh, bought it unseen. Uh, but when he, when he went to have a look at it, he thought um, it didn't look quite right. Van der Gust uh, assured him that he'd shown it to Benjamin West, the famous American painter who would be appointed president of the Royal Academy uh, a few years later. Here's a wonderful self-portrait of Benjamin uh, West, uh, painted shortly after the case uh, was tried. And Van der Gush assured des enfants, Benjamin West has seen it, and he's declared it the finest and most exalted poussin in existence. Well, uh, des enfants later regretted uh, the purchase, he brought an action to set aside the sale on the grounds that uh, the painting wasn't by Poussin at all. Um, and numerous witnesses were called to give evidence on this very issue of was it or wasn't it a Poussin. So for the defendant, there was the landscape painter William Hodges, uh, the portrait painter Henry Walton. Uh, they both said it was a Poussin. Uh, there was also the prominent French painter, art dealer and connoisseur Jean-Baptiste Lebrun, I had, a, I had a painting of him, but I'm going to show you a painting of his wife instead, a self-portrait of his <laughs> wife, Elizabeth Fugier-Lebrun, which is a much better picture uh, in the National Gallery. Um, Benjamin, Whit uh, Benjamin West himself appeared as a witness, whether he was an expert or a witness of fact, history doesn't uh, record, uh, but he appeared as a witness for the plaintiff, uh, denying that he'd ever praised the painting in the terms um, alleged. Um, although he admitted the great difficulty of determining with any degree of certainty and precision whether the picture in question was a real Poussin or not. Um, but he made various criticisms of the, the hand of the Madonna was stiff, awkward, too large, this kind of these, and, and a number of other defects that he found. Um, Richard Cosway, the portrait painter, also gave evidence for the uh, plaintiff, but the star witness uh, certainly was um, Thomas Gainsborough. Here's a rather slightly austere uh, self-portrait of Thomas Gainsborough from about uh, the same time. Uh, Gainsborough emphatically rejected the, uh, the attribution to Poussin. Um, but what I think is most telling about the case is the exchange between Thomas Gainsborough and uh, the defendant's counsel. Um, where Gainsborough said, it's so deficient in harmony, taste, ease and elegance that if I'd seen it in a broker's shop and could have bought it for five shillings, I should not have done it. Um, and uh, the defendant's counsel, I think, was uh, William Garrow. Do you not think there's something necessary besides the eye to regulate an artist's opinion respecting a picture? And Gainsborough said, I believe the veracity and integrity of a painter's eye is at least equal to that of a pleader's tongue. And what I think he was getting at there is that these are different languages and they both have their own reasons and their, both, uh, and their ways of, um, of, of arguing. Um, what I think is telling about this is that um, it, it gives us some hints uh, of the themes that recur in many of the subsequent um, cases. Uh, and what, what I forgot to mention is the jury found in favour of the, of the plaintiff, so he got his 700 quid back, um, and no doubt had to give the painting back as well. Uh, but we don't know the reasons for their decision because it's a jury verdict. Uh, but what I think is, is, is suggestive about the 
the case is uh, some of the hints that it gives about themes which recur in many of the subsequent cases that I'll come on to. On the one hand, the case illustrates the importance attached in this area to the judgment of the experienced eye, in this case particularly Gainsborough, but also Benjamin West and, and others who gave evidence. Uh, we'll see that continues to carry decisive weight in many of the cases. On the other hand, the exchange between Gainsborough and uh, the barrister, um, the defendant's counsel, gives a, an early hint that the law is somehow a bit uncomfortable with issues of this kind. So one feels that the plaintiff's counsel would have agreed with Mr. Gradgrind, Mr. Gradgrind that facts alone are wanted in life and that facts didn't include the kind of things taken into account by Gainsborough uh, in making a judgment on the style and quality of the painting and, and, and deciding that it wasn't by Poussin. And that was very much the way uh, that it was seen by the commentariat at the time, as one journal put it in the General Evening Post of the 12th of June, 1787. Witnesses were called to give evidence. What evidence? Not the whole truth and nothing but the truth, for none of them knew anything of the matter. They gave no evidence, properly speaking, but an opinion, and the jury very justly took that opinion, which was most probable, or rather most generally agreed upon. So that's a very downright, common sense, sort of common law English approach. And it's surprising how, how much one sees that coming back in cases that have been decided in subsequent um, centuries. Now, only a decade later, this case has had somewhat more influence because it's briefly reported in the law reports as a case of genuine and slave, alleged breach of warranty in relation to paintings attributed in an auction catalogue to ten years <coughs> of Claude Dohan. And the claim was dismissed, Lord Kenyon saying, it was impossible to make this case of the warranty. It could only be a matter of opinion whether the picture in question was the work of the artist whose name it bore or not. Um, and, and this, this uh, notion that questions of attribution are only a matter of opinion uh, has been very uh, tenacious. An important legal consequence of this, and there are others which I will um, come to, is that when a painting is sold, generally speaking, when a painting is sold as the work of a particular artist, according to the English law, that is, uh, the attribution is generally not considered to be a term of the contract. And the leading case on this, late, uh, late 20th century now, is the decision of the Court of Appeal in Harlingen and Leinster Enterprises and Christopher Hull Fine Art. Now, uh, the funny thing about that is that it seems to have been common ground between the parties that the painting sold as by a work by Gabriella Munter was in fact a forgery. So the question was simply whether there was, uh, whether that amounted to whether there had been a breach of, of warranty. And it was held that there had been no uh, sale by description. The attribution to Munter was not part of the description of the um, goods. Uh, and nor uh, was there a breach of the implied condition that the painting would be fit for its purpose, you could hang it on a wall after all, um, or that it was uh, not of merchantable quality. Um, and, and the reasoning that was, uh, that, that was given by the Court of Appeal is, is, I think, quite telling. It is a matter, and it's worth attending to the language, uh, it's, it's a matter of common knowledge that the market value of a picture rests largely on its authorship Frequently, the seller makes an attribution to an artist, though the degree of competence with which he does so may vary considerably. In some cases, the attribution may be of sufficient gravity to become a condition of the contract. In others, it may be more than a, uh, no more than a warranty, either collateral or as a term of the contract. Or it may have no contractual effect at all. Remarkably, there is very little authority as to the legal consequences of these everyday um, facts. Um, but then he goes on to say, even if fakes are put on one side, many old master paintings cannot be safely attributed to a particular member of a group of artists, some of whom may still remain obscure, 
All this is a matter of common knowledge among dealers in the art market, and I would suspect among all but the most inexperienced and naive of collectors. It means that almost any attribution to a recognised artist, especially of a picture whose provenance is unknown, may be um, arguable. So, um, pausing there, without suggesting the cases on its facts uh, should have been decided differently, it might be regarded as somewhat paradoxical um, that so much of the reasoning depends on the inherent dubiousness and unreliability of any statement about authorship of a work of art. And yet, on the other hand, there was no dispute in the case itself that the attribution was, in fact, wrong. So somehow it had been established to everyone's satisfaction that the attribution was, in fact, wrong, and yet it was held that the attribution wasn't the term of the contract. This is also it's so difficult to know, and it's also, uh, it's also uh, subjective and, and, and problematic. Um, three points uh, about the case. First, there was a robust dissenting judgment from Lord Justice Stuart Smith, who thought that the uh, plaintiff should have uh, won. Um, secondly, uh, there are many references in the judgment to the fact that both parties were dealers, and the seller himself had actually, um, <coughs> had actually said when he sold the picture to the uh, claimant, uh, to the plaintiff, uh, that he wasn't really a specialist in room to, in fact, he'd never, I think he'd, he said he'd never heard of her before. So he was simply <laughs> passing on an attribution that he bought it as a mentor, never heard of her, and, and was sort of passing it on as what he what he'd bought it as. So you can see how that would be quite um, <laughs> a fairly, uh, fairly uh, telling point against a finding of breach of warranty against the, against the um, um, seller, but even so, a lot of the reasoning, so that, that, that fact, the fact that it was dealer to dealer, gets mentioned a lot in the, in the judgments, um, but a, a lot of the reasoning, nonetheless, about the inherent unknowability of, of attributions, um, nonetheless, would seem to apply uh, to, to all sorts of contracts across the board. So, although we saw on the earlier side, there was, it seemed to be acknowledged that there might be cases where the, the attribution would be a term of the contract, and yet none of those has ever apparently come to, uh, uh, come to court, except in the special case of um, authenticity guarantees that I'll come, come on to. But uh, that is a decision of the Court of Appeal, and it has these inter slightly interesting features, I think. As a decision of the Court of Appeal, it remains an authority which has to be uh, followed, and we can see that in um, the uh, next case, which is Drake and Agnew, where Agnews had, um, this was a claim again by, by a collector against a dealer for breach of condition in relation to a painting that was sold as a Van Dyke. Um, the, the judge actually found as a fact, he said, well, if I had to decide this, which I don't think I do, but if I do have to decide it, I find that it's not by Van Dyke. But nonetheless, the defendant was not liable because the, the attribution was not a term um, of the contract. Um, the, one of the slightly curious features about that was that in, when, when Agnew sold it, um, they bought it from Sotheby's actually as after Van Dyke. Uh, they then sold it as by Van Dyke, but they, they said in their little brochure that they consulted Sir Oliver Miller, who was the world expert on Van Dyke, and that he had told them that he didn't think that it was by Van Dyke. So they'd been absolutely upfront, both about their own very positive, uh, positive attribution, but also the, 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 the doubts about the leading expert. So there, and, and so there was something rather odd about the case because then Sir Oliver Miller was called as the claimant's expert witness to prove that it wasn't a Van Dyke. So there was something odd about that. And that, again, uh, it's an oddity which may, to some extent, explain the outcome. But nonetheless, the language that we find is, is, is more of this sort of rather downright common sense sort of 
no-nonsense kind of, um, obviously Agnew's references to the painting as by Van Dyck or a Van Dyck or expressions of opinion. No one could sensibly have believed that Agnew knew or had some magic formula for establishing that Van Dyck himself had painted um, the canvas. So again, you have this sort of rather deep-seated sort of scepticism about uh, the, the possibility of deciding as a matter of fact whether or not a particular artist painted a picture. Um, so um, the, I, I've talked so far about cases about uh, principle to principle uh, transactions. I'm going to talk now about um, the issues are obviously slightly different when you're talking about somebody who's bought a picture from from an auction house because the auction house, although they are in one sense selling it, they're not they don't own it or don't usually own it. They're selling it as uh, as the agent for the buyer, but uh, often the the claim that's brought by the uh, purchaser is brought in the first instance against the auctioneer based on the auctioneer's description of the of the lot. Um, there are there are there are two cases where um, surprise surprise the claimant actually won, um, and uh, they're both against Christie's. One of them is called the Balcony and Christie's, and the other is Aurora and. Uh, and the reason why um, the, the, both, both cases are a very particular type because they were claims brought on what's called the authenticity guarantee, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, which is printed in the, in the, uh, <coughs> the catalogue. And um, and and actually says that Christie's guarantees that where the where the, the work is attributed, where the, the name of the Painter is in capitals. Christie's warrants for a period of, a period of five years from the date of the sale that any property um, described in that way, which is stated without qualification to be the work of a named author or authorship, is authentic and not a forgery. So, as a matter of fact, Christie's is warranting that the work is authentic and uh, not a forgery. Um, so, for that reason, the, the main issue in the case was whether the painting was by Custodieff or not, as a matter of fact. So it wasn't just a matter of opinion, it was a matter of fact, did Custodieff paint this um, painting? Now the claimant in that case relied very largely on connoisseurship evidence. So this was now the buyer saying, uh, relying on connoisseurship evidence uh, to say this, did the painting essentially just wasn't good enough um, to be accepted as by the artist. And there was obviously went into a lot more details about style and execution um, than that, but essentially it was a, a connoisseurship. And it was the auction house in that case that was relying on more technical evidence um, to, that, that, that was said to tend to show that the pigments were similar to pigments that were known to be used by Custodieff, and the painting technique was, cons was consistent with uh, Custodieff's uh, authorship, um, and so on. Um, but in spite of all that, the judge preferred the evidence of the claimant's witnesses holding that the connoisseurship evidence on that in that particular case provided a more reliable guide to the question of authenticity. And one of the problems he found, and you've come across this again, uh, again and again, um, not just in, in the reported cases, but in, in ordinary, um, in, in disputes before they get to court and so on, one of the problems he found with the technical evidence was that the control sample of other paint known paintings of Custodia, um 
and which were being relied on as, as, as showing interesting parallels in terms of palette and technique and, and pigments was just not, not enough. There just wasn't enough of them. There just wasn't enough uh, evidence available. There was no uh, statistically significant sample available for one to say, well, he did this in the same sort of way, therefore um, it's probably by him. But not only do we not know whether how consistent Custodius was in his painting technique, if we've only got two, um, two paintings to compare it with, but equally we don't know how inconsistent he was with other people who might have, um, who might have uh, uh, painted it, uh, because many of these techniques, there's no great sort of, it's not, uh, some of it is, many, many of the sort of techniques that one's looking at are not necessarily particularly distinctive. So, um, Custodia, the Custodia for Vora and Christie's is an interesting case, and quite a lot of people were a bit surprised by the outcome, but it, it, it shows that the court is perfectly capable of, of dealing with uh, attribution as a question of fact, when the terms of the contract require that. Um, there's a, a, but it, it should be borne in mind, though, that it was a, a peculiarity of the contract in question that led to that. Um, and if you compare it with the Weiss case that uh, Noor mentioned about the, 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 the Franz Hals, um, that was slightly different, because in that case, the particular form of authenticity guarantee said that the uh, buyer would, have, would get his money back if in the reasonable opinion of Sotheby's it was a forgery. And what happened there was that Sotheby's were shown evidence that caused them to, to believe that it was a forgery. They paid the money back to the, um, to the person they had sold it to and then claimed the money from, the, from their consignor uh, under a similar provision. So in that case, the only question for the judge was whether it had been reasonable for Sotheby's to come to the view uh, that it was a forgery. And the judge uh, decided that it had been reasonable. And as Noor said, uh, that was because some of the pigments that were used in the, in the painting uh, just weren't available before the 20th century. So, but he was very, very careful, curiously enough, not to decide that it was in fact a forgery. I mean, I'm not quite sure how it, how it could not be a forgery if it was painted with paints that weren't available until the 20th century. But nevertheless, he, he, he was careful not to decide that as a fact, went out of his way not to decide that as a fact, just in case somebody else would come along and, and, and show that actually the tests were, were flawed or something of that sort. So but, but those are the cases where the, 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 main, the main cases where the buyer has, has successfully sued the auction houses are cases where there is a, a uh, authenticity guarantee in play. Thompson Christie's was a case where they, with, in which Andrew appeared for, um, for Christie's, uh, where the case was one of negligence, negligent misstatement, negligent expression of an opinion in the catalogue about the dating of the, these um, supposedly Louis Cairns urns. Um, and and um, the, uh, after buying these Louis Cairns urns for £2 million, the purchaser, Mrs. Thompson, uh, subsequently heard a suggestion that they may be 19th century revivalist imitations and therefore much less valuable. She claimed damages for negligence. Christie's on that occasion conceded that they owed her a duty of care because she was a special client. Um, uh, but they said they, that they, they defended their dating and they said they hadn't been negligent. Trial judge held that Christie's were justified in describing the answer they did, but they should have warned the claimant that their judgment might be wrong. 
he said there was, I mean, it's an extraordinary judgment because it's actually rather, I think, rather brilliant in terms of its analysis of the technical evidence, of which there was a huge amount. Um, very, very interesting technical evidence about the, the fabrication and the, and, the, uh, and the aspects of the urns. But then he came to this rather peculiar decision that, that Christie's had a duty um, to advise the buyer that uh, although they were confident in their opinion, they weren't negligent in, in that respect, they nonetheless should have advised that there was a 30% chance uh, that they were 19th century imitations. Um, and he directed an inquiry as to damages on that somewhat elusive basis. Court of Appeal allowed Chris's appeal. Um, and uh, I, I rather like this, this sentence, which um, quite possibly Henry came up with in the John of Consumption, all right. Um, uh, he, the Court of Appeal uh, held that uh, Christie's had been under no duty to express the tautological attitude that their confident, unqualified opinion was nevertheless an opinion, <laughs> and therefore, by definition, might be wrong. Yes, so, um, uh, so, so th those are the cases where buyers have sued auctioneers. So, of course, there are cases where um, sellers have sued auctioneers as well, and that's a different type of case because there, what you're saying, you're the, the, clearly the, uh, an auctioneer owes duties to the seller, the owner of the property who puts it in their hand as an agent to sell it on their behalf. And uh, uh, until recently, the, 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 the only case that one had in the, in the law reports to, to rely on this area was Luxmore May and Messenger May Baverstock, who, as you'll probably tell from the name, was not against a leading international auction house. They were a provincial auctioneer. They'd um, sold uh, this painting of a hunting uh, hound as uh, English school or something for a small amount, and it ended up uh, being sold, then resold by Sotheby's for £80,000, and it's now in the Yale Centre for uh, British Art. So um, Mrs. Luxmore May sued the auctioneers for negligence and they were held not to be liable because they had taken appropriate um, outside, they recognised the limitations of their own expertise and they got expertise from outside and they'd come to a reasonable uh, view. Also, they, the court um, found, uh, said that if they'd been obliged to decide whether or not it was a stop, they would have been inclined to the view that it wasn't. But um, uh, the Yale Centre for British Art evidently um, thinks otherwise. Um, so that was the only case that one had to go to until um, uh, eight years ago, Coleridge and Sotheby's, this was a different, uh, th this was a case obviously against the leading international auction house for alleged um, undervaluation of this rather extraordinary object, a gold chain of office worn by the last Chief Justice of the Common Pleas. Uh, Sotheby's had dated it as a, rest as a late 17th century piece and advised Lord Coleridge to sell it for um, £30,000, and it was subsequently put into Christie's as a Tudor item. Now, what's the difference? The difference is that a vast, the vast majority of um, gold objects were melted down, that, that, that were made before the Civil War were melted down during the Civil War to raise, raise money um, for the fighting. So um, there was a, the, the case against um, Sotheby's was had a lot of uh, plausibility to it on the face of it because they said that anything made after 1576 must have been made from 22 karat gold or, or greater because it became illegal from that date to sell, uh, to sell uh, gold objects of a, of a lesser purity. Um, uh, so it must therefore have been made before 
1576 because the gold in this object was 19 um, carats. Our answer to that was, yes, we accept this law was passed, um, but actually it was honoured more in the breach than in the compliance. We found a rather wonderful example of a gold snuff box which was given by uh, Charles II's Queen, Catherine of Braganza, to the Lord Chancellor at the time, um, and was sold, subsequently sold to the V&A by the claimant <coughs> expert in the case, uh, who hadn't tested the gold, but it turned out to be 19 karat gold. So here was a very high status object being sold to the highest law, uh, law officer in the land, and it didn't comply uh, with the rules. So, so some of his uh, were held not to have been negligent uh, in that case. Um, and the last, uh, case is uh, Thwaites and Sotheby's, um, which was a claim, uh, a similar sort of type of claim by the consigner who said that Sotheby's had been negligent um, in their appreciation of this picture. Um, Mr. Thwaites had inherited property from his father's cousin, who in the 1940s had bought this picture from a, a junk shop in Kendall and subsequently sold it to the Metropolitan Museum in New York for £50,000 as a Caravaggio. It's now recognised as an original work by Caravaggio, but it somehow ended up in a junk shop in, in, um, in Kendall. Um, and after that, it became a hobby of his to, uh, to buy Caravaggio-related works, including th three copies of this wonderful painting, um, which at the time when he bought his, uh, his three copies, was lost. This painting was lost from about 1890 till 1988. Nobody knew where it was until it turned up in a restorer's uh, workshop in Zurich in 1987 and was recognised to be an original work by Caravaggio. It was recognised because it had stamps on the back uh, from the, uh, the, the collection marks on the back from the patron for whom it was known to have been painted. Um, it matched exactly a photograph that had been taken of the painting in the 1890s when it was still in the family of the, uh, of the people who bought it from uh, Caravaggio's uh, patron in 1628. So there were lots of reasons, quite apart from its intrinsic quality, uh, to accept this as an original work by Caravaggio, including the fact that when you analysed it with infrared and x-rays, you could see all sorts of interesting things going on underneath the, the top uh, surface of the paint. Whereas when you analysed um, this using similar methods, you found absolutely nothing. It was like a sort of black and white photograph. It was simply somebody evidently trying to reproduce the exact same um, uh, design um, and um, certainly producing something which you might want to have on your wall, depending on your taste. Um, but nonetheless, uh, not having any of the, 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 the same qualities as the, um, as the original. I, I think I'm going to have to uh, finish very quickly now, but I just want to wrap up with a couple of observations about this, this, this case, because it was another case where there was a, a dispute, essentially, between the, the people who were advocating the use of scientific methods of analysis and those who were advocating um, uh, connoisseurship. Of course, it depends on the particular case. But both sides, I think, were, were, were looking for a silver bullet, a sort of technical quick fix which would answer the question, is it or isn't it a uh, Caravaggio? Um, uh, and, but but the, the fact is there wasn't one. There wasn't one. Um, and uh, again, it was the problem that we just don't know enough about even Caravaggio's technique, about which has been a huge amount, has been a huge amount of scholarly effort has been devoted to studying Caravaggio and his technique 
over many, many years now. We don't know enough about his technique to be able to say this is or isn't a Caravaggio simply on the basis of the way in which the painting is um, put together. And nor, perhaps even more importantly, do we know enough about the techniques of copyists so that when we find a technique used in what we were saying, of course, is a copy, whether we can say that that is... Um, that, that, that that's something that should be surprising or, or characteristic of somebody who's, who's, uh, who's, uh, who might be Caravaggio rather than simply somebody trying to reproduce what Caravaggio um, did. Now, um, and the, at the end of the day, the judge once again was persuaded by the, by the, um, the, the connoisseurship um, evidence. Uh, she made, the, the judge, uh, Mr. Justice Rose, made some interesting observations about uh, expertise during the course of the trial, and I'm going to finish very quickly now, but I just want to, I can't finish without, telling, without drawing these points out. During the course of the trial, I was taken to a range of scholarly articles and correspondence written by um, these witnesses or other Caravaggio experts. From this, two points emerge. First, it is clear that an art historian may express his or her current view with considerable certainty based on what may appear to a lawyer to be scant available evidence. A great freedom of surmise and speculation may also be legitimate in an article or treatise that, that is generally uh, for, appropriate for a witness. This does not rule out another equally qualified expert expressing a different view with equal certainty based on the same scant evidence. And, th and then she talks about the fact that technical analysis uh, can be a very good way of ruling out um, the possibility of a painting being uh, authentic by, for example, by pig when it's got pigments in it that simply can't have been put there at the, at the date of the named artist. Um, but it's actually much less effective, and I think this is generally accepted at ruling, uh, ruling in, uh, ruling a, a work into the fold of, of, of authentic works by a particular artist. Um, so I, I'm afraid I've, I've run out of time, but I think what's wonderful about her, her um, judgment uh, first of all, is that I think that nobody, although she was decisively in favour of some of his witnesses, she said nothing which I think would have caused the claimant's witnesses, who were obviously expressing their honest beliefs, to wake up feeling uncomfortable in the middle of the night about uh, anything that she'd said about them, uh, which I thought was a good thing. And secondly, um, uh, she herself, when she came to consider the connoisseurship evidence, talked a lot about what she understood to be the quality of the painting. And I thought that was right, because at the end of the day, you have to, if you're going to decide a case on the basis of the connoisseurship arguments, you've got to show that you've understood them, you've got to engage with them, and not just, not just look at who has the better credentials or the, or the better PhD or, or, or what have you. So I think that the, the, the Thwaites case, it's, it's worth a read, uh, is, is, is a very good development for the art market. Uh, not, because, not just because Sotheby's won, um, but also because it, uh, it, 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 it sets out, I think, a realistic, uh, a, a realistic view of what the duties of, of, of auctioneers are and the standards that they have to uh, comply with. So thank, thank you. you very much. Very, very interesting. It makes yeah, sorry, me think, I no, 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 no. It was, it was very, very interesting. Um, lots of, lots of experience. It made me think again of the Kouros case, which is the Greek. You know, sometimes mm, you yes, can't, yes, yes. you can't explain why you think something is, you know, yes. um, wrong. And actually, I was averted to that. And I don't know if anyone's read Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, but that's the introduction. Is just talking about the fact that sometimes there just isn't 
any mathematical or yes. scientific or legal formula for deciding whether something is fake or isn't. It's yeah. very subjective, yeah. but you have a feeling. Um, we do have quite a bit of time for questions. Um, so if anybody has any questions, this is the best time to put them, especially to Richard, who has a wealth of experience in um, defending or prosecuting these cases. So does anybody have any questions to put forward? Yes, uh, what? Can I ask you're one thing that occurs to me? What's, what's uh, your name, sorry, and where do you? Sorry, I'm Michael Daly from Artwork UK. Yeah. Uh, we, 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 it seems to me that we, we, we've gathered that it's really people missed the courts. One of the judges seemed quite sort of eccentric in his pronouncement in one of the cases. Um, but that's, that's one risk for the, for the buyer. Uh, but there's, a, there's another even larger one, it seems, uh, that has been noticed by picture forgers. And there was a forger who published a book recently, Ken Perenni. He, he's been immensely successful offloading forgeries all over North America. And he'd run out of um, fences, he'd run out of contacts who could take them for him into galleries without arousing suspicion. And he had he'd done so many versions that he was on the point of getting caught. Mm -hmm. And he came over to London and looked at all the catalogues in the auction houses and discovered to his delight that the auction house, buried in the small prints at the back of every catalog, was the warning for the buyer to beware and the warning that the opinions that are expressed are only just that, mm. and that it was for the buyer to establish to his own satisfaction that what was said was the case. Um, and that seems to be an extraordinary state of affairs that it, I think is unique to the art market. Mm. You, you have no <coughs> defenses, you have no protection mm. in reality. <laughs> Yes, I think it depends on on your perspective. From the buyer's perspective, you have the authenticity guarantee often, although, as I mentioned, sometimes it, it, it's a question of fact, is it or isn't it authentic? Sometimes it's left for the auctioneer to reach a reasonable uh, view on that. Um, but you're right. Uh, the terms and conditions do tend, tend uh, to, to limit uh, direct futures of care to claimants, although sometimes I think it's probably fair to say that the, the terms and conditions have evolved over time and, and perhaps some bits of them are less uh, unhelpful to claimants than others. It's a, it's a, sometimes a, they, they, they fit together quite as, as, they, as they were meant to. Well, there are two sets, really, yes. of, of um, terms and conditions, and some give you much more protection than others. Um, and you've got to read them jolly carefully. Yes. Um, not only do they vary between auction houses, so you look at the Aurora case, uh, Christie's gave a pretty good guarantee there. The judge said, I don't know if this is or isn't a custodian, but because Christie's have said it is, that, that's good enough. Um, whereas the other cases, the Sotheby's cases, um, in most of them, it was just a declaration of opinion. <coughs> so it depends which auction house you're talking about, but it also actually depends where you're buying, because if you look at the Sotheby's catalogues in New York, they give you a buyer guarantee than ones in London. But 
for historical reasons, because Sotheby's is actually the merger of two different auction houses, and they kept the same terms, uh, or they kept the terms they used to have. Uh, and so you've got to read very carefully what rights you have as a buyer. You can't assume that there are a standard set of rights across the board. So, um, so the buyer could be negligent, could be held negligent for not reading with sufficient attention. Well, he's not going to be negligent, but he's, he's just going to, he, to determine whether he wins or loses. Well, um, also, <coughs> bear in mind, this is the position in England where it's protective of the seller, generally the, the, the auction house. As I understand it, the position in, say, um, some of the civil jurisdictions, such as France, possibly, possibly Italy, protects the, the buyer. So that Article 1382 of the French Civil Code yeah. positively puts a liability on, on the auction house, whether or not they say. So it depends where you buy as well. And I'd be interested to know what the position, if there are any American lawyers, but I think in New York it would be more akin to the, to the English position, which is buyer beware. In a sense, even more so. Even more so. Position, you've also got consumer protection rights, and they do affect what the auctioneers can say on catalogs in England. You don't really have the same rights to the same extent in the US. So, in fact, it's, it's more buyer-aware in the US than it is here. So, it's can, a shade of grey. Can I ask about the Thompson case and the Earns? Because that, that uh, seems to have been a special case in that the seller. Uh, the auction house uh, was also acting as an advisor to the buyer and the buyer it, it turns out even uh, when buying uh, under advice being advised uh, still had no protection still lost the case well is I think um, <coughs> Andrew Onze could answer that question better than I do but I, I think the point is that actually uh, that could have been a position but in fact Chris has accepted that because she was a special client they did owe a duty of care. So, in fact, they did argue the case on the merits. And I think probably most auction houses feel better about um, fighting cases on the basis that they got it right rather than on the basis that they're protected by their terms and conditions. Yeah, I mean, what it boils down to, and as counsel Christie's, what it ultimately boils down to is that Christie's opinion, as the judge essentially held, and this was what this, this was the this was the tension that the Court of Appeal <laughs> saw in the first instance judgment. Um, Christie's opinion and statements based on that opinion that these were um, 18th century, not 19th century earnings, <coughs> was reasonable. And that's all that the buyer at auction was entitled to expect. Because Christie's weren't giving uh, any guarantee, they accepted that they owed a duty to take reasonable care. And on the judge's findings, first instance, they did. And that's the problem that the Court of Appeal faced and decided that there was then no room for saying that somehow they ought to have advised her of what um, the later Lord Sumption uh, described as the tautological platitude, that it's all a matter of opinion. We also have to remember this is a commercial transaction in which, you know, a party is deriving economic benefit. There are... Um, so that, you know, it is a different... It's, it's also worth considering that you may very well buy something that you believe to be a genuine Caravaggio, or let's say um, a genuine Max Ernst. Um, but then the, it's a different question altogether as to whether it is then included or it's accepted by the art market and included, say, su such as in the Nikiel case, in the catalogue raisonné. Um, because while 
rights. For instance, in France, the auctioneer is not protected. The, the author of the catalogue resume is, and, and it is an expression of opinion. So you may have a court judgment or, or you know, going back to the, to, the, to the scenario where you do have a court judgment that says something, the art market itself also operates in a different sphere. So you may have a work that then is not then recognised in, and not included in, in, in the catalogue resume. Um, you know, uh, in, in terms of, for instance, the, War, the Warhol uh, case. Um, or the custodian case, where or the custodian. market still thinks it's not a very good custodian, but it's a custodian. Mm. So what do, you do, what do you do when a court, you know, when a judge or a court says... Well, I don't know if Martin's here, yeah. but Charles Christie's, because mm. presumably they've still got it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what they do with it. I mean, and also there is a problem. The, the problem is, um, there, there, you know, it is a problem that boards are not authenticating and that they're shutting. And in their absence, who is to prove what is to be, you know, what, what is fake and, 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 what, and what isn't, if they're just worried about, you know, being sued. Um, so I don't know. I think, um, I think the, there are going to be difficulties that arise out of contemporary art, um, the, you know, the, the contemporary market living artists, what people are... I think one has to think about what, what do you do um, to protect that artist legacy. Archiving is really important. Um, you know, for instance, the, the decision by the Sol DeWitt Foundation not, not to issue more than one certificate of authenticity. We have to think about now, not just obviously the cases that involve the old masters, mm. for which there's, the, you know, there are experts and there's a, there is more connoisseurship than there is arguably in the contemporary market. Mm. The contemporary market is quite inflated in many ways in terms of value as well. So, um, I mean, I, I, I recently um, acquired a, a drawing by, by George Kondo and he, he doesn't authentic, he doesn't sign his, his drawings. What do I do? Are you sure sense. you've recently acquired <laughs> Yeah, well, certain drawing. I mean, because he, well, in, in the case of Kondo, he produces so many works that maybe he just doesn't have time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, so I, mm. guess, I guess one has to also be aware uh, right now in terms of uh, what you're buying from galleries, not even just from auctions, and, you know. What's the situation if an artist creates a situation whereby for the actual commercial market to accept the work, they have to, the work has to be sold with a certificate of authentication, which the artist himself issues, but then in certain cases, the artist refuses to mm. issue those work. For example, Banksy and his street works. He, the world knows they're right. They're in, you've got photographs mm. in all the major books, but he refuses, he doesn't say they're wrong, he just refuses to give a certificate, but the world not, the work, it can't be sold because he's created a situation. Surely that's a bit dicey. You just don't buy it. Yeah, just don't buy it. I mean, I have come across that. Yeah. I've come across that with uh, where where it was pure spite on the part of the artist. Yes, yeah, somebody, the... somebody could have bought it before that situation yeah. arose. Yeah, pure spite on the part of the artist against the dealer with whom he'd fallen out, just refusing to provide certificates of authenticity of works which he accepted he had made. But he refused to provide the certificates which were necessary because of the nature of the works. They were sort of mm. photographic sort of works. They couldn't be sold without a certificate of authenticity and he refused to provide one out of pure spite. But is there, is there, is there legal recourse? Well, I think there should be, but we never got to that point. I mean, there were... There were uh, it, I've known a case where an artist wouldn't because a work was coming up for auction and, and the artist just thought auction was wrong. 
Right. Yeah. Well, there we yeah. are. Yeah. yeah, I've heard about that. So I'm not yeah. Yeah. I should say the drawing was no th- certificate of authenticity, not not signed. That's a diff- big difference. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I was going to say something else, but I forgot. Um, the 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 issue also sometimes comes into the into play in terms of moral rights. For instance, in some countries, can only go to this the heirs of the estate, and they 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 then hold the power. So I think in one instance, I don't remember the the artist, but possibly it was. Giacometti's wife, um, perhaps not, but it, she refused to authenticate uh, a, a work, um, or the wife of an artist refused to authenticate a work because it was of the mistress of the artist, and so just for that reason. Um, and, 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 and then what do you say? that? And, and in certain jurisdictions, you cannot, either the artist has the moral rights or it goes to the, to, to the heirs of the estate, and a board cannot take on those rights. Um, yeah, and they can come into conflict with mm. with with another with the with a, would say an established board who is trying to to authenticate works, mm. um, and then um, they they're in defiance basically. So the the heir says one thing doesn't it? And the board says another. Um. Hmm. I hadn't really thought of that. That's very interesting. Can I ask a question? Yeah. What, what do you think you should do with a fake? If you had something that's been determined to be a fake, what should you do with it? Well, um, as Noor mentioned, some of the, the in, in France, sometimes they just get destroyed, don't they, against you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that's a bit extreme, personally. I mean, uh, it's... Uh, given the examples that we saw earlier on where fakes have become unfakes, for instance. Yes, quite, quite. Um, but I th- it is rather difficult to know, to be honest. I mean, if it's... Um... Give it to the St John Museum. No? <laughs> 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 That's a reference there, to the... There uh... is a museum of fakes, actually. Yeah. There is, yeah. And it isn't a fake, the, the, yeah. the, 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 the <coughs> I mean, a, f- a fake painting... It's not a, is... it's not a fake. It's just a it was just copying. Yes. yes, but according to François uh, Robert, that it is it is still a, fa- a fake yes. because anything mm. trying to be passed off as yeah. as as, so as an well, I don't think it necessarily was though. I think yeah. that's the thing. You don't really know, but I mean, people copied <laughs> old master paintings all the time for sale, just as copies, not as yeah. substitute. But you know, so in the 18th century, there was no concept of copyright at all. Yeah, yeah. You wanted a um, yeah. Term, but earlier than that, if you wanted a Caravaggio in the 17th century, then you just went and got one. Yes. I don't know how, many, how, many, copy, well, how many copies of the card charts have we counted. Yes, we, 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 we had a file full of about, I think there were about 20 that had been about through 20, the auction houses yeah. in the all last date, 40 years. From the first half of the 17th century. Yeah. Yes, or some possibly or a bit later, possibly but I mean, but, later, yeah, but, and you, it became a classic country house picture, the card chart. It was the equivalent of Athena today. Yeah. 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 I mean, you would think you'd get bored of painting the same thing. So even that, just you in itself, so. <laughs> would would be would be an indication. Well, the World Organization leaves the stamp about the ones they consider fakes the big fake. Denied. It, they yeah. used to say mm. denied. Yes, I think something like that. I mean, clearly, a fake in the hands of the forger or or a criminal who 
who procured it is an instrument of fraud and probably should be confiscated. Um, but I'm not sure about what you do with a fake that's <coughs> in the hands of an innocent purchaser. That, um, that's the problem yeah. all the time. Yeah. When, you, when you get something, you decide it's a fake, what do you yeah. do with it? Do you give it back? Yeah. Because of course then they can take it down the road if they feel that way inclined and have another go. Yes. Quite. So Report it to the authorities. <laughs> well, yes, yes. And on one balance, you might say, fair enough, we might have been wrong. Yeah. Why should they not have the right to have another game? Quite, yeah. And it is, after all, their property. Well, there is that small yeah. detail. <laughs> Whatever it is there. Yes, yeah. yes, quite. So, so generally, I think, I mean, we used to give them back. Yeah. Uh, unless there was any sign that... Uh, <laughs> that it's the forger or somebody yes. very close to the forger, if that's the case, you do it. Yes. Um, but you know, there was a lot of criticism of that at times because mm. it allows these, these objects to continue to circulate in the yeah. market, which is dangerous. Yeah. Well, some form of marking may be the answer, but who knows? Yeah. So my, um, uh, someone I used to work with, a lawyer um, at my, one of my previous firms, um, helped to, is, is behind the establishment of Richter's archive and the, the archiving behind his work. So that's very important, it's not what you do now in terms of protecting against uh, yes. future uh, fakes. And you just have to have a strategy and everybody has, in the world needs to, be, to know what that artist or their board or foundation or committee, what what they de deem to be authentic. In a non-legal way, I'm actually creating the small letters catalogue resume. My mother was an amateur artist. She died a few years ago, and I'm trying to do the same for her. And it's incredibly difficult mm. tracking them down. She was painting for 40 years, most artists mm. are. Tracking them down and knowing what's what and which is which. I'll dating never come them. up with a yeah. I've, I've learned a lot through the process, mm. actually. Mm. I'll never come up with a definitive list. Mm. And that's before it, it, anybody's decided to start trying to fake it, because it's just not worth it. Mm. Just, with, even without that problem, it's incredibly mm. hard to do. And that's uh, within five years, rather than a hundred years, of the artist mm. disappearing. Yeah. Sorry to single you out. We have a very interesting gentleman in the audience who's working on documentary uh, for art, you know, art crime, basically, and the uh, subject being Chinese forgers. And so it will be interesting to know what... Um, uh, well, yeah, the, 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 the series isn't quite about that, but there is a, a village in China uh, which forges uh, a huge number of old masters' paintings as sort of the principal export village in China, um, and now I think they sell it legitimately, it was illegal. Do you remember this? Mm. What, was, what, was, what was it exactly? Do you remember the... Because it was illegal, and then the Chinese government made it illegal, so they started to stop selling those forgeries. They stopped attempting to forge them. And then, so, so they initially sold them as authentic. Yeah. They forged them and sold them as authentic. The government said stop doing that, so now they just sell them as forgeries that you can purchase for like $30 or something. So they stopped trying to pass them off as inauthentic, and they just said, we're the best at forging Rembrandts. So that's why Mars, so the can... board who has his website called yeah. Genuine Fakes. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> which seems to be, a, a, in research for this project, seems to be a kind of a recurring story. Yeah. That lots of forgers are saying, well, actually, I can just sell my fakes for legally, save their fakes, sell them for 50 quid, and then sell a lot of them 
and then you know make a decent living doing that. But I think a genuine fake by Mark costs you about ten thousand pounds. Really? Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. That and as long as he doesn't sign it Turner or whatever, and signs yeah. it Mark, then there's no problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Were they using the original pigments in this village, or were they using modern? I, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure. That's another documentary that I'm not making. Right. Somebody <laughs> sent to me uh, the pitch deck for. You remember? No. No. Okay. I'm not sure. Is it? Sorry. Is, is it the question of attribution that distinguishes uh, forgery from a, an homage? Say, in the case of this Chinese village, mm. if they were claiming it to be. So, so or, 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 is it the attribution that's sort of from a. English jurisdictional perspective that is the distinction. Yeah, well, in fact, in the typically the auction house terms and conditions and the authenticity guarantees defines a counterfeit or a forgery as a work which is intended to deceive. So, which of course introduces a subjective element. Um, and if the if the uh, the creator um, brazenly asserts that he's not intending to deceive anybody. Yeah. Then you know that 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 creates uh, a potential so philosophical it, difficulty. So the difference is between those; they are not trying to pass it off, as opposed to in the yeah. case of the Nodler Gallery, where yeah. Rosales was saying this Mexican, you know, unnamed person has all of these works by Pollock and yeah. um, other abstract expressionists, exactly. and it was somebody working out of a shed, I think, also yeah. um, just uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Keating was another example of somebody who said. Oh, I didn't think anybody would would yeah. accept my crude daubs as the genuine yeah. article. It was a sort of homage to my, you know, Samuel so, Palmer, my favourite <laughs> artist. <laughs> no, it is interesting that a small it, when it's too good to be true, it, it usually is. And a lot of what underpins all of this is greed. And mm. um, the Nerdler Gallery was established, I think, in eighteen eighty six. Yeah. It survived yeah. two wars, three. Yeah. I don't know how many recessions, and it was this that brought it yeah. that brought it down ultimately. Yeah. I read a statistic somewhere in doing research for this that, uh, or somebody, I think, uh, somebody said that uh, that they they reckon that up to fifty percent of artwork kind of on the market could be could be fake. That there, I think it was uh, some kind of Swiss organization dealing with sort of categorizing old fakes on the open market, and they said up to fifty percent of them sold in auction houses. Yeah. Quite difficult to see how you reach that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's why the English courts don't like to hold people liable so, so easily. Mm. Um, you do your own yes. research, basically, if you come here. Um, but well, there is a sentence more or less like that in the Harlington case where they say, well, it'd be, it'd be terrible if we go around finding people liable <laughs> for, for uh, wrongful attribution. It would bring a halt to the market, they said. I mean, they actually said that. Partly influenced, possibly by the fact it was dealer to dealer, but even so, there is this sort of in English law, there is this rather sort of um, uh, this rather mercantile view that you don't want to do anything to to uh, that might grind, uh, sort of stop the wheels of trade. Uh, rolling. Do you think that's if you get a, you know, a granny on one side and, and that's yes, I think it did. I think it's, it's it could be different. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I imagine lots of cases where there really is a a serious question mark over attribution and you have a granny as opposed to another dealer. Or they're not going to get very they, 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 they probably, well, well they, those cases probably settle, but I mean, they, they don't go to trial, yes. Yeah, so Most they, they cases. Yeah. Settle. We don't read about them because they get settled before they go to trial, so we don't really know how the courts would approach that. And 
things are expensive. I mean, scientific... It's, it'll be interesting to see how science advances in the sense of the Getty case was 91, and science has advanced um, quite considerably in those years. But again, it is expensive to, go, to, mm. to, to subject a work that you're trying to buy to X-ray mm. and, other, and other scientific mm. processes. It comes out in a court case, and everything about court cases are expensive. So, mm. um, but it, is it reasonable to... To, to, to go to those lengths, but it will be interesting to see how, to what extent now science, when you do compare it to 30 years ago, it, can, you, can, they be, can scientific processes be relied on more? Because in later cases, it was the scientific mm. processes that proved that the fake that they thought were fakes were actually genuine. Yes. So. Just, uh, sorry, on that point, I mean, based on your experience, do you find that there's more cases that settle proportionately in this area of law? So, art, attribution, fraud, than other cases. I don't know, any employment, any mm. other sort of field. Because it strikes me that with uncertainty in you know, demonstrating, depending upon what the claim is, right, the veracity of the piece, and you have this uncertainty because it's opinion-based, mm. it may lead, lend itself to settling, right? I mean, litigation is clearly going to be risky, yeah. but much I, more risky in this case. Yeah. I I think it depends on the, I think it depends on the case. To be perfectly honest, I I, I think most lit litigation settles anyway. Yes. Um, there may be some categories that settle more than others, but I d wouldn't necessarily say that I think art cases are more likely to settle than any other type of case. Most cases settle. Um, it is true that there haven't been a huge number of cases that have been reported, which is why you know on this list that you've got, I probably haven't noted all of them, but I probably most of them. Um, that, that, I, that, that have been reported anyway. Sometimes the sums of money at question are so large that it mm. inhibits settlement. And then if you have a work that you can't do anything with mm. and you're not receiving what, what you think yes. you should be receiving, settlement isn't possible. Yes, but that's Valuation. a feature of lots of litigation. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, if you had the faulty house, you could um, spend a lot of money on it and sell it. But if you have a yeah. fake... Uh, Rembrandt, you, it's worth, it's nothing. Yes, that's so. true, that's true. Well, thank you very much um, for, for, for sticking, sticking with us <laughs> through the question time. Um, and I don't want to keep you a bit from the canapes and the refreshments. So please feel free to mingle and ask us more questions over, over refreshments. Thank you. I've got some. Do you want to add something? I was just going to say, I've got some pictures of the um, Thwaites picture, if you're interested, of the infrareds and things like that, and that you can come have a look. <coughs>